Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Resource Roadmap Show, OT edition. I am your host, Carissa Simon, and I'm joined by our amazing OT content development team, Megan Wilkinson and Johnny Ryder. Um, in our podcast, for the new listeners, uh, we talk about the resources released for OTs by Therapy Insights each month. We also discuss some articles, recent articles, so you guys can have more evidence-based practice. And then at the end, we discuss a case study, what we would do, what resources we would use, and kind of how we would approach their case. So we do want to let everybody know that we're offering this for AOTA-approved CEU credit. And if you want that, you just have to go to therapyinsights.com and you can get more information there. And because of that, we need to verbalize our disclosures. We are all paid by Therapy Insights to be here and part of this podcast. And we're going to be discussing resources that are created and offered on therapyinsights.com. All right. And with that, we want to get started with this month's resources. So our first one is called Spot the Difference. It is a three-page resource and has it's an activity. So the second two pages are the activity portion. And the first page kind of explains what um, the activity is and how you do it. And I'm going to turn it over to Megan to give us a little more information about this great resource. Yeah, so this is a classic one when we're looking at some of those visual perceptual skills, the spot, the difference. But the thing I really love about um, the way we did this, this uh, material is we created them in these more functional settings in these places that you would actually spend real lifetime. It's not, um, you know something that's just randomly fabricated for the task. It's really looking at an outdoor scene in a garden um, and then also sitting at a coffee shop. Um, so making it as functional as possible, always, you know, the best that we can. Um, so really simple. I, I like having two options. You know, you can kind of um, make it what is more the interest for your client, or if you've got more time, you can do both, see how they do. Um, a couple of, uh, different options there. Um, you, they just on one page has the two separate pictures and then there's one page that has, um, the answers. And so you can kind of keep that one to yourself, um, and, and score how they do on that. So pretty straightforward, I feel like, um, but always looking for those easy materials that you can just grab real quickly and use with your patients. So. Yeah. I love that about this one. Again, it's like another great activity, that if somebody needs something real quick and they didn't have time the night before to make something or time that morning, they can just grab this and it's very functional and colorful, bright, and looks really nice and professional. So I love that. The great thing about all of our handouts is that, you know, as occupational therapists, we can use them for different purposes and, and repurpose these for whatever skill we're trying to remediate. And so I think what's nice about this is you don't have to go looking for something you know, online or try to piecemeal something, you have this available for whatever visual perceptual skill you want to work on. You could use one to work on a certain skill and then you almost assess it with the other one. You could come back to this with a different skill, you know, a day in between sessions. There's a lot of use that you can get out of this for various visual perceptual disorders. And it's great that it's really geared for adults because if you're looking for a task like this online, you're going to find things that are more geared towards children because that's what this kind of activity is usually geared towards, but very helpful for adult population. And it's nice that it's age appropriate. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so we're gonna move on to our next resource. It is a two-page resource. It's called Cooking Strategies for Executive Dysfunction. And Megan, can you tell us a little more about this one? Yeah, so I love this one because really looking at how can we simplify our lives just in general? I mean, I think that I use a lot of these strategies on a day-to-day basis too, you know, Um, but being able to have this nice and lined out of different options that you can use when it comes to cooking. Cooking is such a complex task that we all just do multiple times a day. Um, But when you have uh, executive functioning deficits, it can be really overwhelming. And so a lot of people just kind of tend to opt out, I found in my practice um, of cooking. And you know what, sometimes that's totally okay. And and we talk about that in here too. Um, And so just ways to to simplify um, cooking for yourself. So the nice part is at the beginning is it, it breaks down Um, Some of the executive functioning skills, planning, organizing, attention, uh, time management, mental flexibility, and what that specifically looks like in cooking. And so you can kind of um, break that down for the client or even as an occupation or as a therapist, you can kind of have that in your mindset of like, oh, okay, like these are the things we should be working on. Um, And then it goes into different strategies. So just simplifying, make a one pot meal or microwave as much as you possibly can using a salad kit. That's one of my favorites. Um, as, as a mom is like, I'm, I'm not going to chop those vegetables. I'm gonna, I'm just going to use a salad kit. Um, and so making sure that that mental load isn't as heavy and you're not having to focus on 20 different things at a time to make a nice meal come together. Um, and then it talks about go-to meals. And so this is, these are the ones that you know by heart. You you don't have to have a recipe. You just know, hey, this week I'm making chicken and rice and I know how to do that. And I know how to, where to find the groceries at the grocery store. It's just very easy. Um, again, reducing that mental load. Um, prepping in bulk is a big one too. You know, you can get, you know, if you could use like Costco or something like that, get a ton of chicken and cook it all out, but then separating it out. So the example here is um, chicken with vegetables, and then you can reheat that chicken for tacos and then use that chicken on top of your salad for lunch the next day. So making it not this big task every single time you get into the kitchen and just trying to simplify that. Um, Lots of external aids like timers. um, And then addressing cleanup too, because I think that's a big part of why cooking, um, again, becomes this bigger task because it's not just about, oh, I made the meal. Now I have pots and pans and, um, spoons to clean up. And so how can we simplify that? Um, and then of course, having no cook meal options is a really good option as well. Being able to throw together a sandwich on the day that you're like, I don't want to get out the pots and pans today. It's just not happening. And then um, some nice little tidbits on the side of of if you are following a recipe, how to go about doing that with executive dysfunction, because a lot of times the recipes we find online, while they look so delicious, um, they're maybe not super easy to follow. Um, If you don't read through the whole recipe, you might miss something, just lots of tips for being able to follow recipes. So I think that this handout has um, a lot of different options that can kind of be combined for different uh, patients, um, or using all of them at the same time. So, um, 
things that you can practice in therapy as well. You can kind of have this resource and say, Hey, well, let's go practice meal prep. If you're lucky enough to have a kitchen and work on some of those types of things, but let's implement this strategy and see how this works. Does this feel less overwhelming for you? Or is this not the strategy for you? Let's try a new one. So, um, good, good information with this one. I, that's how I would use it. Kind of the last thing you said, Megan, is I would take this and it would be an entire treatment session where <laughs> we know there is a goal for meal prep, whether you're a practitioner that's very comfortable with functional cognition and you need a guide, or you haven't had to address functional cognition in a while. This allows you to one, talk about the different components of executive dysfunction. And again, there's a little bit here to get the ball rolling. And then you can kind of have that dialogue with the client and talk about remediation techniques versus compensatory techniques, and then work through some of these strategies and kind of explore them. How would you feel about you know, meal prepping in bulk? Is that something that would fit your lifestyle? Would that fit your role as a mother, father, partner, son, daughter, things like that? And then together identify, oh, I wanna work on the use of external aids. That works for me. Now you've got a plan and you can still give them this handout, but rather than just handing it to them and walking away or saying, here's some good strategies to work on yourself, I think this opens up you know, an awesome opportunity to discuss these problem solve, dialogue, figure out what will work for the client, and then set some goals for the next treatment session or that treatment session you're in right then as you work through the various strategies. Because as you mentioned, there's a lot on here. Not everything's going to be appropriate for every client, but this allows us to use this with pretty much any client with any concern related to functional cognition or more specifically executive dysfunction. Yeah, I agree with you, Johnny. That is how I would use it too. I feel like it gives a guideline of what we should be working on with these specific clients in the kitchen, which sometimes can be overwhelming. You know, you want to do a cooking task, but it's like, what exactly am I trying? What is my goal? What is my end um, what I want to see at the end. I also like that you could just give this to patient family who's a little bit hesitant about um, their loved one cooking again, or is concerned and say, look, this is, this is what we're going to address. We're going to try. Um, do you think any of this could work for you or really work alongside the caregiver or the family member too? Yeah, I think just the the multi-use of all of our handouts. And sometimes I think calling it a handout is a little bit limiting because it's not just something that you do give to them. But mm -hmm. I work with a lot of new practitioners who have tons of knowledge, tons of skills. But, you know, if you haven't done a session on this one topic in a little while, you kind of start to panic a little bit. And you're kind of like, how do I handle this? And you mm -hmm. pull out one of these, quote, handouts that are also like clinical guides in some ways. And it could be enough just to give you you know, a quick refresher, it could be a guide for that whole session, it could be a conversation starter, um, whether you're, you know, been working 20 plus years, or you're a brand new grad, or even in your level two, you know, fieldwork experience, you can use this in so many ways. And so I, I hope that people recognize that, uh, even though we call them handouts, there's, there's more than just handing them out. Yeah, I like that clinical guide. I like that. <laughs> All right, and we're going to go to our next one which is knee replacement and occupational therapy. This is a two-page handout that um, has some pictures of adaptive equipment and footwear that you should and should not wear. And Megan, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, this one was a request from somebody. And so I 
like I've mentioned before on other shows, I love getting requests. I like knowing what you guys are missing and what gaps you're feeling are out there when it comes to resources. And so um, we always try to to fulfill that and kind of exceed expectations when it comes to that. So this one is really looking at um, having some guidelines as as the client is going into surgery and what they're expecting immediately after having a knee replacement and what they can kind of expect when they go home. Um, the big key points here are uh, the, the pictures, I think, and having the resources to really uh, visually look at what equipment looks like, because I think sometimes you know, as practitioners, we are so familiar with this stuff. And if you just kind of go on a spiel talking about it, and, and this is all very brand new to someone, it's kind of like, what's a reacher? I don't know, you know. Um, so having some of those pictures is a really, really helpful um, aspect of this handout. And so it specifically is talking about OT's role in therapy as well at the very beginning. And, you know, when you have all these people coming in into your room after you've had a surgery and you can't keep anybody straight, um, having that little piece right there to say, okay, like this is what OT is going to work on with me specifically um, after my knee replacement, talking about self-care, bed mobility, functional standing, all of that good stuff. And then there's a nice checklist here of how to prepare for after your surgery. So things you can potentially do beforehand. And so having this in like a packet as a handout um, to to them prior would be an, a wonderful thing as well because um, family support and um, caregivers, whoever can also have this as a resource. And you can kind of like lift some of that weight off your head knowing you've taken care of some of those things before you even enter into surgery. So um, some of the points are like prepare some freezer meals ahead of time and make sure that you have someone to take care of pets and, and children and some of those types of things. Um, just to, again, um, reduce some of that stress of going into, into a surgery. Um, and then the, on the second page is really the bread and butter of like, I'm doing my rehab right after my knee surgery and what are we going to be looking at? And so um, it talks about dressing. So coming into uh, the hospital with loose and easy slip on and off clothing so that you can easily practice um, some of these methods that are going to be taught um, with with the adaptive equipment and, and um, not feel limited by your clothing choices. Um, and then it, it, it goes into a lot of the very specific, you know, strategies that we know by heart as OTs, but again, it's in a nice written form, um, for, for the, the client. So dressing, you're going to thread your operated leg first and undressing, you remove it, it the non-operated leg last. And so, um, just really clear, concise bullet points that they can kind of follow, have at hand. Um, it, it then dives into toileting and showering and then has these nice pictures of shoes that would be appropriate to be using and then um, ones that would not be appropriate. And then also fall prevention checklist. Obviously, we, we know, again, as cl clinicians that a lot of times falls happen after these um, surgeries and we really want to prevent that. And that's a huge thing that we can really be pointing out. And so that's in a nice blue box at the bottom and, and checkpoints and making sure you have that proper footwear. And then they have that resource right above to look at, oh, here's the, the footwear I should be wearing, making sure your lighting is good, um, taking your time and then asking for help. So um, just a really good 
concise uh, way to prepare for knee replacement and what to expect when you're working with an occupational therapist after having knee replacement. My first thought when this was announced was like, this is following evidence because we have found over many years, the more someone understands their procedure, what to expect as part of all aspects of rehabilitation, the better the outcomes. And so as you mentioned, this is going to really relieve some of that stress, but that's that's evidence-based as well. So this is something that, you know, occupational therapy practitioners could use as those pre-surgical groups. I used to teach those and there were never any resources. I was constantly trying to make something and type something up and never look this good, that's for sure, because I wasn't <laughs> very creative. But for those of you that are teaching those pre-courses, you know, before someone has a TKA, maybe we'll have one in the future for THA as well, or you know, total shoulder arthroplasty, things like that, these can be the perfect handout. They can, again, be a guide. If you're not teaching those types of courses, maybe you should consider it because the evidence supports it, and it's a great role for occupational therapists to explain both the medical side, but also the rehab side, and what life is going to look like after, and how you can get back to your normal life as quickly as possible. And like what you were saying, Johnny, when Megan was talking through this, I was thinking about how it's a great way for us to advocate for ourselves and our role, um, because some not in every in every hospital, OT is not always um, a priority after knee replacements, which makes sense. To a certain extent, you want to be able to walk again. That's what everybody's goal is, get their knee range back. But I think this is a great way to advocate for our role, not just post-surgery, but pre-surgery and hand it to some of your administrators or um, unit leadership and say, look, like this is what I can contribute as an OT. I really think I have a role in this and look at what I can do to help with patients. Absolutely. All right, and we're gonna go on to the next one. And it is a two page handout. It's called Joint Protection for Arthritic Hands. So there are some pictures on there showing what you should and shouldn't do um, and a lot of different tips and tricks. And Megan, can you go ahead and tell us a little more? Yeah, so this one was actually also a request. Um, there, This information has been out for a long time, but it's very dated. And so I think that we did an excellent job of providing images that show some of those protective um, positions that we can be using, some of the adaptive equipment that we can be using in a way that is modernized and easy to um, very quickly, without even reading anything, you can kind of tell looking at this sheet, um, some strategies that you can be using in your, your everyday life. Um, so it, it breaks down, uh, again, several different strategies that we can be using in order to to protect our arthritic hands. So planning ahead and pacing yourself and then really talking about the relationship that these, these individuals have with their pain because pain is just a part of their life. And so being able to, um, like I said, frame it in the way that you, you have a relationship with that pain, right? It, it's a part of you and part of what you're going through. And so um, instead of trying to ignore it or let it limit you basically saying like, what, what can I do to continue to live life independently, knowing that this is a part of, of my, my daily experience. 
Um, and so some of the biggest points that, that we know is using those larger and those stronger joints to be able to do things. And then there's a nice bullet pointed list of examples of being able to do that, that are a lot of them are associated with the photos that are on this page. So carrying a backpack over both of your shoulders versus carrying a handbag or a purse over, over one arm, um, using your palms to lift objects and to push buttons, and then hugging bigger objects to your chest to lift them instead of holding them at your fingertips or at your wrists. Um, using two hands to carry an object instead of one, sliding things across tables. Um, lots of lots of good examples here um, that while they have specifics, I think can also can, uh, excuse me, influence that creativity of what you might be able to use, what is actually applicable to you, to your patient in that, which again, we talk about all the time with our handouts. We, I think as a whole team believe that these resources are, we should go over them with the therapist or with the client in that session and really discuss this so that you are, you are really on the same page. It's not something to just hand them and say, okay, read it, your leisure kind of thing. Um, and so being able to run through some of these examples and saying, you know, um, specifically when they're hugging a bigger object, what, what's something that might be more applicable to them that's not um, necessarily listed here. It talks about a laptop or a grocery bag. You know, maybe it's specifically, um, I, I'm, I'm blanking here, but maybe their bag, their purse or something like that. That's really heavy. Um, being able to bring it, bring it to them and talking about those examples and then putting them into practice. Can you demonstrate to me how that would be, how you would pick up this large object using these strategies um, that we've talked about right here to make sure, are they understanding you're, you're not just like rattling off to them. It's a conversation, right? Um, and then modifying their grasp. And so we actually have a, another handout um, in the therapy insights resource or library that talks about buildups and how you can use it on so many different objects. And so that's talked about here again, that might be a good one in conjunction to use. And so building up your writing utensils, your kitchen tools, um, any hobbies you have, such as gardening. Um, and then balancing, again, rest and activity. I think that so much of it is, again, talking about how do I work this into my my life without it limiting me, um, but also without ignoring it. It's really about that balance. How do I um, accomplish the things that I need to do um, with this? And then uh, definitely the value on pain-free exercise. Again, I think sometimes the, there's the two very opposite mindsets, which is I'm just going to ignore this problem and continue to, to function at the way I should be, which is damaging, or I'm going to let it limit me so much that I'm not going to participate. And so this point of like, no, exercising is actually really important. We need to continue to move those joints and get things um, lubricated and, and moving. Um, and then lastly, talking about the, the use of splints and braces and some popular ones that are used for, for arthritis. I think I like, you, oh. you go ahead, Johnny. I was going to say like, to build on what Megan said, I think if you talk to any occupational therapy practitioner and you bring up the idea of joint protection techniques, everybody knows what they are. This is kind of a staple intervention. But the nice thing, as you've already alluded to about this handout and this guide, is that it is a way to conceptualize these joint protection techniques. Because just verbalizing and talking about this, even though it's, it's common language for us, even saying things like larger and stronger joints than smaller joints can be difficult for someone to conceptualize when they've never even taken a kinesiology class or they haven't really thought about, oh, these, you know, interphalangeal joints are different than my elbow joint. 
for bringing things in and changing the the lever and you know the force and the effort and those things become so natural to us as occupational therapists we need something like this to kind of be that catalyst for our clients to say hey let's walk through this let's talk about it then as megan said apply it to you you know maybe you don't carry a big purse but you carry your your dog or your cat or your child and things like that or your doorknobs don't look like this how can we modify that as um, a partnership in, in therapy and so I like this because it, it opens that discussion, but it still allows us to move into client-centered on a topic that may be very comfortable, but is, is hard to educate someone on without visuals, without demonstrations, without application. Yeah, I was thinking along the same lines that I love how it has those pictures. I feel like that sparks um, both the therapist and the client to think about oh, maybe their door handles are okay, but uh, their locks are tricky. And so it will like spark that conversation. And while you're looking through these pictures of the examples we've given, it might help people to think of other areas that they're having trouble because you have these specific examples. And then we're gonna move right into our first article snapshot, which is related to this last handout that we talked about, which I love. So it's called Assistive Devices, an Effective Strategy to Non-Pharmacological Treatment for Hand Osteoarthritis, Randomized Clinical Trial. And Johnny, can you tell us about this article? Yeah, so this is a study, a very well-done study looking at the use of assistive devices as kind of a strategy for non-pharmacological treatment for individuals that have that hand osteoarthritis, All right? So it is a randomized controlled trial. It was prospective. The assessors were blinded. So um, we, we, this is a really high quality study. So we had participants randomized to an intervention group where they received assistive devices and there was a lot of different ones that they could receive or they went to this control group where they received basically like a, a guideline leaflet, like a handout and just basic information on joint protection and disease features related to arthritis. So they use some common measures that we're all familiar with, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. They also use some very specific functional, uh, hand function measures related to arthritis. And then they measure things like pain, quality of life, right? That, that are important outcome measures that we're already considering. So they looked at these groups after both interventions, um, kind of that beginning of the study, 30 days and 90 days after receiving these interventions. And so there's about 19 in the um, intervention group and 20 in the control group. Overall, they found that hand function and occupational performance improved after the intervention group. And when they kind of compared the results, there was a statistical difference in the Canadian occupational performance measure, right? And so we found a little bit more of an improvement in those that received actual assistive devices. So we can kind of say, okay, first of all, the use of an assistive device is an effective intervention, you know, especially in the non-pharmacological realm for hand osteoarthritis, it can improve occupational performance. They also found that it improved pain and quality of life, all things that we care about as occupational therapists. However, we also found that educational pamphlets or the leaflets with information related to the disease, in this case, osteoarthritis, um, and joint protection and, and energy conservation techniques for daily activities, that was also beneficial. It's low cost. It still had an effect, albeit it was a smaller effect than the intervention group, okay? So that should start 
get us thinking that, you know, at, at very least, we should be providing them with a handout. But as we've said over and over and over, there should also be education, there should be training, and then we can take it a step further and provide assistive devices because they also help with multiple measures, quality of life, pain, and occupational performance. Overall, we learned from this um, RCT that we should be ensuring that we are making assistive device recommendations, okay? When we do that though, this article suggests that it, the suggestions and the training should be contextually dependent basically. So it should be client-centered. We should be considering how do I use this device for my daily activities, which may be different for me versus Megan versus Carissa, right? For each client. And we should be training them how do they use them, right? What does it look like when you use these? Um, how often should you be using this? Is this something you use all the time, only when you're in pain? Right, all of those clinical considerations, that's where our skill comes from. One other interesting thing from this is they looked at, well, what were the most commonly used um, assistive devices? And so that wasn't kind of in our snapshot, but they found the most beneficial and the most used things were pot openers. So helping them open pots, um, zipper and push button adapters, um, adapted cutters, um, adaption, adaptations for rooms, so how they could sweep and mop, utensils was a very big one, and of course adaptations for getting in and out of the bath, turning levers, things like that. So all things that we should be assessing as part of our initial evaluation, and then we can make recommendations and even trial or problem solve some of those assistive devices. I love that this gives us such clear evidence that what we do is helpful. The adaptive equipment we provide or recommend is helpful. And it's also good to um, kind of show patient families if the family is hesitant or the patient is hesitant because of cost, because we do know some of this stuff can be expensive. Some of it's not so much, but some of it is. Um, it's a really good example of why we're recommending it and that it will really improve their quality of life. It's not just something they'll buy and not tossed like in a drawer or something, hopefully, but it will improve their quality of life. Right. And a lot of these are now being printed with 3D printing and getting mm -hmm. cheaper and more accessible, which is really nice because you can order these things on Amazon where before you had to get, you know, a, a specific rehab manual, I mean, a you know, book basically to order them from and they were very pricey. We're seeing uh, increased uh, accessibility and decreased prices with a lot of these assistive devices, which is a positive thing for our clients. Yeah, I love the, first of all, this is just such a clear picture as to why our profession is valuable. It's so good at showing that our ability to, to see the specific individual client for their needs, our ability to modify, our ability to do these low cost um, uh, modifications and interventions and do something that is non-pharmacological. I would say most people would rather not go that route if they don't have to. Um, and so just such a clear picture on that. And then to comment on what you're talking about with the advancements, I think a wonderful thing is the fact that we're able to get on something like Amazon and have all of these different options and to look through reviews and have clients that are like, I've had, you know, OA for five years and I'm able to use it for this specific thing and it's great and whatever. I mean, the 
the resources and the information that we now have. I mean, going back to the way catalogs <laughs> used to be, you know, I mean, it was just like, well, I hope this works. It's in the catalog and like, we're going to order it and it'll come in however long, you know? So um, those advancements have been huge, I think specifically for OT and, and our career. Yeah, they definitely have. I remember just telling people, oh, you can go to the local pharmacy. You'll probably be able to find a raised toilet seat there or a long-handled shoehorn, hopefully. But now you're right. You just go on Amazon and that's been, I feel like it's been relatively recently that almost everybody has access to that. Mm -hmm. Kind of grew really fast. Yeah, I mean, not to age myself, but when I started out, I did have those big Salmon's Preston's catalogs when I was in home health and I was taking them around to show them because I needed some visual and mm -hmm. the days of doing that are gone, fortunately. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're gonna go to our final handout for the month, which is Adaptive Sports. It's a three page handout and it has a bunch of different pictures of people participating in the different adaptive sports. And I'm going to turn it over to Megan to talk a little more about it. I was so excited writing this piece, you guys. This is something I'm very passionate about. And I think it comes from my neuro background, specifically my spinal cord injury patients and being able to watch um, them get into something like this and have something that they're excited about and to build community. I mean, that's a huge part of sports in general, right? Is you bond with people who have similar interests, um, similar passions. And then there's just that other layer of they understand, right? They understand um, life through that lens in a way that as therapists, we don't, or some of their friends and family, they don't. And so um, there are so many studies out there that talk about the benefits of participating in communities like this. And so, um, being, again, being able to write on this was just really, really fun for me. And there are so many other sports. I mean, it is huge, the breadth of adaptive sports and different groups that, um, you can be a part of and competitions you can be in. And so, um, this touches on a lot of the popular ones and there's a cup, some bullet points at the end of the resource that talk about other options. If, um, the individual is wanting to explore some of those. So, um, the first one is talking about adaptive skiing and there are so many different options for adaptive skiing. Um, you can have mono skis, you can have bi skis, there's two track, three track, four track skiing. So all these different options to be able to support yourself um, while on the snow. And it, it really details that in, in this handout. And so you can kind of again, with, with the client be reading through and saying, oh, hey, like this sounds more like what you would need based off of um, what you've got going on. It would be something to try. Um, a lot of these two touch on the fact that there are a lot of places you can go and trial some of these. So a lot of ski resorts will actually have at least one set of some of these equipments and um, big ski resorts will have someone who is trained in um, adaptive skiing and be able to work with someone with that equipment on the slopes um, to be able to kind of trial, trial that stuff out, which is really awesome. I think that's a, a great resource to have. Um, and then going into sled hockey. And so you can see on the picture, if you're watching um, that it is in a basically you're, you're laying down essentially you're sitting straight up your legs are straight out like you're in a sled and then you've got these specialized um 
sticks on the sides. So you're really low to the ice, um, being able to kind of propel yourself a kind of blend of skiing as well because you've got you got one on either side that's helping you propel across the ice um and the other thing i did touch on with this piece is talking about potential limitations so in order to participate in sled hockey you uh need to have a rink that has lower entrance levels onto the ice um, because it's really hard to navigate in that low seated sled position, getting on and off the ice if you have a really tall ledge. And so being able to research some of these things in your area too, is it's a really good jumping off point. Hey, we've read through all of these. They're interested in sled hockey. Okay, well, this made the point that the rink needs to have this. What are the supports in our local area? Being able to just really deep dive into um, the availability of the community. And again, depending on where you are in the country, some of these might be more popular rather than not. Down south, you're probably less likely going to find um, adapted hockey rinks. <laughs> um, with that, with that low ledge, whereas up north, you are probably more likely to find a lot of those. Um, it was really fun too, as I was creating this, I started getting that, that Google feed of, of my local <laughs> areas that were saying, oh, these are the adaptive teams that are in your area. And I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> I love this. So um, very cool. And then um, it also dives into kayaking and it is amazing the amount of equipment that there is for a lot of these sports. Um, so many different options. So there's high back seating, which is great for someone who has a spinal cord injury. Um, and then they've got these extra balancing pieces that are that are out in the water to make it so that the tipping is less likely to happen. It's a much safer way to do that. There's ways to lower somebody who is a wheelchair user into the kayak. Um, just lots of, of different equipment that makes it really accessible. And again, um, lots of groups across the country that support these things, um, being able to, to kind of trial these out, do um, uh, kind of like camps almost to, to figure out what, what works for you. Cycling is huge in, in the adaptive sport world. And there's um, lots of different types of bikes that can fit uh, the specific needs of, of the individual. So tandem bikes, bikes, which is allows for two riders. So these are good for individuals who have uh, like a significant cognitive disability. And it's not something they could safely do on their own, but love that that movement, that freedom of riding on a bike. So having a caregiver or family member with them to kind of help them get get out there and, and using that. The tandem is a great option for that. Um, there's also recumbent bikes, which is that more lower to the ground um, reclined kind of, of bicycle. And again, um, they have that high back seating, which is great for core support and added comfort. Uh, and then um, the trikes typically tend to be more popular with more leisure and uh, older populations, um, whereas a recumbent bike is a more competitive uh, cycling sport um, that these individuals can get into. And then there's hand cycles, again, for our individuals who don't have leg function. And if you're watching on this picture, it shows someone with the hand cycle on, the, on their bike and being able to propel it with their upper extremities um, instead of their, their lower extremities. So again, just so many amazing modifications and options um, for, for this sport. Golf is a big one. Um, I grew up in a big golfing community. And so um, 
it, it's it this one is a particularly expensive sport for uh, our disabled um, clients, but also for people who are more able-bodied anyway. So it's an expensive sport regardless, but um, this one has um, the, these big carts that can actually move the person into that standing position so that they can swing the, go the golf club. Um, but there's also, you can learn how to do seated golf as well. That's a, that's a popular way to, to learn how to do it without having to get that, that equipment. Um, and then there's all sorts of different uh, tools for extending reach down to the ground to hit the ball. Um, for, for grip, it will act, there's some uh, tools that can attach the hand essentially to the golf club. So um, making sure that you're really, because it's a, typically a two-handed swing. If you have one that has a lot of weakness or reduced grip, it can kind of hold your hand to, to the golf club while you swing, um, which is, which is a great modification. And then the last two on here that it specifically goes into detail about are wheelchair basketball and wheelchair rugby. And um, with wheelchair rugby, we have a nice little QR code, which shows a, a really um, good video about what it looks like and um, kind of getting to watch people playing it, which is awesome. And with all of these, being able to go watch a video and see what it looks like is great. Um, but this one is, really popular because there was a documentary called Murder Ball because <laughs> wheelchair rugby used to be called Murder Ball because it was so aggressive and physical in nature. You've got people in these really built up wheelchairs that are very specifically made for these sports and they're just crashing into each other and you see people flying and falling on the ground and doing all sorts of crazy stuff in this sport. But um, just a lot of of camaraderie too. I think, you know, there's a deep passion in sports in general and, and being able to carry this one out. And this is such a fascinating sport to me because it is a blend of multiple sports together. Basketball, hockey, and handball is kind of what this, this sport is combined to create wheelchair rugby. Um, and so again, on these talking about some of the different rules, because um, specifically wheelchair rugby is basically its own sport within itself that was created for wheelchair users. Um, and then in wheelchair basketball, talking about some of the differences. And so with both of these, they play on teams that have a point system uh, that is determined by people's level of ability. And so each team has to have make up a certain point system. So someone on the team could have a lower point system while someone else has a higher point system, but together their team makes up a certain level of points in order to, to be on the court at the same time, um, which I think is a really great way to kind of categorize that. And then um, again, like I was saying at the end of the resource, it has bullet points talking about other options. If you really want to kind of deep dive and, and look into some more uh, uh, options like sailing and bowling and hunting and fishing and all the different adaptations that can be made to participate in, in sport. And um, there are a lot of local competitions that you can be a part of state competitions, just like, um, you know, any sport, there's multiple levels that you can participate in this. In. And we, you know, the Paralympics is really famous, but there's also the 
the extremity games, the special Olympics, and then there's the deaf Olympics as well for people who are hearing impaired. So there, it's a really big um, group and community and just being able to be the person as OTs, it's totally in our realm to say, Hey, this is, this is something that you should be looking into. This is really valuable to your quality of life. And, um, we should investigate this because I think it's, it's a normal experience for people to, um, feel like this is all off the table once something like this happens to them. And it's just so not true. Um, and so as they start to gain that independence, um, being introducing like, Hey, like, how are you going to get back out there? I know you were a big basketball player. Did you know that wheelchair basketball is a thing? Right. So having this resource to kind of, uh, again, spark some of those conversations. I love this handout. And I've also been involved with quad rugby for many, many years, sitting on the board of a local quad rugby team. And we're going to talk about some research behind it, but I had to mention one reason why I appreciate that we have this handout through therapy insights and why we're ahead of the game is at the AOTA conference, we presented um, some research that's being published in the OTJR journal um, later on this week, where we interviewed quad rugby players across the country to understand their experiences of being introduced to and participating in quad rugby. And as we'll talk about in a minute, what all the benefits are, the one thing that the article we're sharing doesn't talk about is that introduction. And unfortunately, Many of the individuals were not introduced to adapted sports during their rehabilitation process. And yet everyone that wasn't said, I wish I was introduced earlier. I wish someone had talked to me about this because it's changed my life. And it hurt my OT heart a little bit when I heard that so many of the experiences were not positive early on, and, you know, learning about adapted sports. The average time was years after their spinal cord injury before they're introduced to adapted sports. So we can do better as a profession. And this one can educate other practitioners to what's out there, because I guarantee you, a lot of people, even in our profession, had no idea how many adapted sports are available. And we can also use this to, as early as possible, introduce this idea, whether they were an athlete or not, to our clients. Yeah, I agree with what Johnny's saying. This is just, this is such a hopeful handout. Like a lot of times after such traumatic injury, people just have such like horrible despair and they're having to figure out their whole life again and let things that they thought were going to be in their future go. And this is just such a hopeful way to say, look, this is, this is not the end. Like you have so many opportunities. There's so many ways to be involved in your community and be active and have such a great time. And I just love this, this handout. It's so amazing. I think too, even if the individual doesn't necessarily land on adaptive sports, the, the hope and the concept of the fact that there are groups, there are communities out there that, you know, are participating in, in things in a life after injury, right? And they're coming together is a, is a huge part of it. Um, just being able to, like you were saying early on, which again, Johnny, I agree, we should be catching this much earlier, uh, early on being able to say, you know, to, to frame it in a way of like, as the therapist, we're not just trying to, oh, we're trying to make it, you know, better. We're trying to make things, um, 
things are going to be hard. And so therefore we're doing the best that we can to make things easier on you, which is, is true, but also coming from the light of like, look at all of these opportunities that you are going to have to continue to live a really full life. Yeah. I uh, was lucky enough that in my, um, schooling, I actually had a professor who was an OT who had a spinal cord injury at a very young age. Um, and so went to OT school with a spinal cord injury and he, um, it was awesome. I got to do lots of learning with him. And I just remember him telling this story about him hiking with his, what was going to be his married family and them just going, Oh, how can we help? Like, what can we do? And them trying to just like protect him as he was going down this like very windy hill down to a lake. And he kept being like, no, no, I got it. But then he fell <laughs> and he fell down this hill and um, they were like, oh, see, see, like we need, you know, and he was like, nope. And he showed them that he could get himself back up. He was back on the trail. He dusted himself off. He was totally fine. Um, and that, that story stuck with me in a way of just like, yes, like this is not like, this is the attitude to have of how capable um, these individuals still are and how active, you know, how active he was and how very much he advocated for himself as well. Um, and I think that goes really well hand in hand with these handouts and that, that same idea of, of hope. Yeah, I agree. So now we're going to do the article snapshot related to this, like Johnny was just talking about. It's called Adaptive Sports and Spinal Cord Injury, a Systematic Review. And Johnny, can you tell us about it? Yeah, I'll be quick because we've talked about adaptive sports a lot today, but it was a systematic review really just looking at the last five years. So an update on the evidence. So it's very recent literature overall, as we would expect and, and know if we work in this realm. Uh, adaptive sports has been shown to have a pot, have many positive health benefits, um, including physical and psychosocial benefits. However, many of these athletes must um, overcome a variety of barriers to even be able to participate. Some of those things that they found were transportation issues, accessibility, and of course, socioeconomic factors with how expensive it is to participate in these sports compared to some able-bodied sports. So they also identified some facilitators to participation. So if individuals had a pre-injury interest in sports, they were more likely to want to engage in sports. Um, males tended to want to engage in adapted sports more if they were injured at a younger age. However, they highlighted these don't, it doesn't mean these are the only factors, it just means those individuals tended to find adapted sports quicker and easier, but we should still be introducing this to anyone and giving them the opportunity to participate if they, they want. Because um, we know that as occupational therapy practitioners, individuals might want to explore new leisure, new recreation occupations, especially throughout their life. And so we should be open for, to adapted sports with everyone. So a lot of different sports were highlighted in here. Megan has already highlighted them today, but I think some of the, the interesting things that we haven't talked about is now there's even virtual options with eSports, which um, are brand new. And also we have better knowledge and ways of monitoring athletes for pre, peri and post competition injuries. Um, we have a lot of knowledge out there about injury prevention for these individuals and things like concussion management, what healthcare pro professionals should be involved, how to train coaches and players. Um, yet we still have more research that's necessary within this population. We're still extrapolating a lot from able-bodied athletes. But I think the key takeaways are that there's physical, psychological, and social benefits of adapted sports. 
um, for individuals with spinal cord injuries, and those benefits are numerous. We don't even have time today to talk about all of them. Um, we as therapists can help address some of these barriers to participating in adapted sports, and we should be advocating for increased access. All right. We know the benefits, right? We know the evidence. So it's our job to help increase that access for our clients and adapted sports should be a part of that plan of care. And how are we going to get them to get involved in this and whatever level of care we, we are giving them, if that is one of their preferred occupations. And then, as we mentioned, we should be introducing clients to adaptive sports as early as possible to maximize their participation and those psychosocial benefits that we just talked about. All right, so moral of the story, adaptive sports are great. Introduce them early on and do what you've been trained to do as an occupational therapy practitioner and support them in that goal, if that is one of their goals. I love it. Amazing. All right, so now we're gonna talk about our case study. Miss Little is a 75-year-old female in the hospital who is status post a right knee replacement one day prior. She has a five-year history of osteoarthritis in her right knee with significant pain that was impacting her ability to participate in desired daily tasks. She is planning to return to a two-level home with five steps to enter. Her bathroom and bedroom are located on the second floor and she has a full flight of stairs to reach the second floor with left ascending rail. Miss Little has two cats at home and provides childcare for her two grandchildren three days a week. She also is very involved in the community and is part of her town's garden club, along with volunteering at a local animal shelter. Miss Little currently reports she is experiencing nine out of 10 level pain in her right knee and has demonstrated significantly impaired mobility with use of a rolling walker. So we're gonna discuss what resources we think um, would be great for Miss Little's case. And then at the end, we'll talk a little more about her case and what we would do um, as occupational therapy practitioners. So I'll go first. I selected your whole body rehabilitation therapy team. So this is a one page handout and it discusses the role of occupational therapy, speech therapy, and physical therapy. So the reason I picked this one is because Miss Little is pretty young, um, young old, 75, and it sounds like she was very active before this, and this might be her first encounter with um, physical therapy and occupational therapy, since knee replacements are usually elective. So I think it's just very important um, if it's someone's first encounter that we make it very clear what the role of occupational therapy versus physical therapy versus speech therapy is. And so that they know um, if their goal is to get back to volunteering at the animal shelter, we are the ones that are really uh, have that knowledge and to, can help them to get back to those important like roles and routines. So I just thought this was a great handout to give background information, not just in this case, but really any case where it's the person's first experience in rehabilitation or first um, time working with an occupational therapist. You can do your little spiel and then be like, look, I'm going to give you this handout too, just so you can reference it. And if you have any questions or you think of things that I can address for you, just let me know. So I love this handout. And then Johnny picked Teach Safe Balance Strategies, and it's a one-page handout. Yeah, so 
I struggled. There's lots of options. However, with the information given in this case study, I would guarantee that the occupational therapy practitioner will be working on some safe balance during ADLs and IDLs. And so I thought this handout would be a great place to start. Um, for those of you that can't see it, it provides key points for the therapist when teaching safe balance strategies. And they're written in a way that can be applied to any preferred occupation. So whether it's, you know, some basic ADLs, going up and down the stairs, getting in the shower, or, you know, kind of progressing to IADLs and preparing a meal and going out to the pet shelter or going and working in the garden, we can apply these to preferred occupations. And even though we're still in the hospital setting, we can still simulate some of these things in the hospital in preparation for Miss Little returning home. And so I thought this is a, is a good intervention that we could start with and a great handout to use. However, I was torn because there are so many other ones out there and I don't know which one Megan chose, but we have ones on pet care and safety with managing pets. We have ones on knee stiffness after total knee arthroplasty replacements. There's pain management techniques. So I think it's going to get harder for us to just pick one handout um, as we do these case studies because there's a lot of applicable ones. Yeah. Now we're gonna do Megan's. Megan selected pain management and it's a three page handout. And Megan, you can tell us about it. Yeah, so I had the same situation, Johnny. I was like, I don't even know. <laughs> we have so many answers to this one. Um, and you know, to me, the clear winner was that the pain is, is the issue, right? And so this one is really for the clinician and just kind of really brushing up on different ways to look at pain management. My, my big thing here is it's a five-year history of osteoarthritis. And so that's a long time to be living with that pain. And, um, a lot of times, you know, moving through the rehab process and, and getting out of that mindset of pain as well is a challenging thing when you've lived with it for so long. Um, and then on top of that, she's reporting nine out of 10. So she's, she's really struggling with that pain and, and we're not going to be able to move into how do we work on feeding your two cats at home safely. And some of those other things if we're so limited by pain, um, to that, you know, standing and some of those other things, we can't even get past that. And so I thought that this was a, again, like a good place to start at. I imagine um, a, a newer graduate or just someone who maybe is in a new setting, whatever, just being able to kind of brush up on all of these different ways to manage pain. Um, and when that is the chief complaint of somebody. And so it's really nice because um, it talks about advocacy. It talks about mentality, which again, in this case, when it's something that we've lived with for so long, breaking that mentality is a big thing too. Um, sleep, huge, um, and then different modalities that you can use. So again, kind of brushing up, where do I start? How do I, how do I look at this pain, which is so limiting to, to Miss Little? Um, and then once we get that under control, we can start to really look at all of the different, she's so active, all the different things we want to get her back to as OTs. Yeah, I, I love how we all kind of took a step back because it's a very complicated case. We all took a step back and we're like, where there's a lot of components, not complicated, but there's a lot of components to it. We said, okay, where do we start? Because there's just so much with her case and we can't address everything all at once as OTs. But I love how we all were like, okay, where do we start? Yes. I think we also have the new handout on total knee replacements that we yes. today that we all would have chosen if it wasn't the new one. 
um, as a great starting point, but I think she'd be a great client to work with because it sounds like there's plenty of things that we can do. She's already given us, you know, goals and things to work on. And I, I doubt she would be one that we'd have a hard time motivating for therapy in any setting, but especially in the hospital setting. Mm -hmm. Definitely agree. She sounds like a good one. <laughs> And now we're going to go over some of our other resources that were released by the PT um, team this month. So the first one is functional neurological disorder. And this talks about what the different diagnoses are that fall under functional neurological disorder. It's one page um, and also common symptoms of it. So check that out. And our next one is Evidence-Based Practice to Improve Walking After Stroke, Spinal Cord Injury, or Brain Injury. Um, and again, this is a one-page handout, and it's talking about some of the findings of a recent um, systematic review of literature over the last 30 years to give you like the best evidence for improving your walking after those diagnoses. The next one is two pages. It's also from the PT team. It's called the Pain Catastrophizing Scale, Interpretation and How to Implement Findings. So this one has a great QR code that takes you to the actual scale. And then it talks about how you score it, um, why it is important and how you change your treatment if it is pain catastrophizing. Okay, and the final one from the PT team is one page as well. Um, it's Treatment for Functional Neurological Disorder, a Guide for Clinicians. So it talks about how you should take the subject's history, how you should develop your plan of care, what the approach should be, how often you should see them, and what the recommendations are for treatment. So all of those look like great resources from our PT colleagues if you want to check those out. And to get instant access to all of the resources we talked about today and hundreds more, just go to therapyinsights.com. You can access all of them there. All the links for the resources are available in our show notes. And if you have any questions, if you have a case you wanna discuss or you wanna know what resource we think could work for somebody you have, or you have any questions about any of the handouts we've discussed in this episode or any of our previous, please reach out at support at therapyinsights.com. We would love to talk about it on our show and answer your questions. Um, and be sure to vote on what we create next. Megan loves when people vote and say what they need. And our next episode is coming out August 1st. So we'll see you then.